friends. It's good to see you. And tonight I just get to share a little bit of some things that the Lord has been kind of teaching me, showing me, doing in my heart over the past year or so. Um, But to bring you up to present day, I want you to rewind with me for a second. The year is 2010. I am 22. I am a fresh graduate of Corbin University, and I have just landed my first full-time job, which happens to be at Morningstar Community Church. I was hired as a high school director um, and also worked with young adults. And so I am suddenly just kind of launched into that chapter of my life. Full-time vocational ministry had no idea how long I would do it, like if I would do it for a long time or a short time, but they asked me to not look for another job for one year. So I committed to that. Um, Also had no idea at the time that Michael and I, we were not dating at the time, but we would be married two years later and then start working in full-time vocational ministry together. Like we were both on staff um, at the church and I loved it. Like I was here for that season. I was into it. I felt like I had the coolest job in the world. Like I got to spend my days serving people, talking about Jesus, meeting people for coffee, helping shape the lives of students and got paid for it. Not like so much, but I did get paid for it. And it was such a sweet, special season. Many of you were around and with me during those years. And of course it was not without hardships, but it was relatively easy to attach like meaning and significance to that season because I was like, I'm spending my days like working for Jesus, so to speak. And there's something kind of strange that happens when you are in vocational ministry, um, like working for a church or something like that, and your job being like explicitly Jesus-centered that makes you feel like you're doing like the really important work. Like you just, you believe in it, you know, that's why you're doing it. And Of course, as I was in conversations with high school students and college students, I would, you know, let's say they didn't want to be a pastor or something. I'd be like, that's okay. You can be a teacher. You could be a nurse. You could be a banker, whatever, because you can still witness to your coworkers or like you can still serve Jesus in your spare time. Like that was kind of the rationale of how you would attach meaning to something if you were a Jesus follower. Um is to make sure you could find a way to like make it spiritual, if that makes sense. And I do still believe in sharing Jesus for your, or with your coworkers and when you have the capacity like, and you want to serve somewhere, some way, great. But I think I was missing a part of the picture. I think that was my context and that's what I knew and made sense. But I think it was short-sighted of me to think that um, You had to do more than just your regular life to make it meaningful. Um, And I'll share a little bit more about that later. There was also lots of, you know, if there was a student who was particularly solid in their faith and like had some natural leadership giftings, sometimes we would try to convince them, like, just come do ministry. Like, you don't don't need to go get another job. You can intern with us and we'll pay you $400 for the entire summer. (laughs) And you can work super hard and it will be incredibly fulfilling. And hoping that maybe they would choose, like, the way, the way of the Lord to go and become a pastor or a missionary or something like that. And I now know that while there is value in that and some get to do that, many do not. And that is okay. Um, 
And then in 2017, my whole context and frameworks changed. We gave birth to our second baby, Jack, and our family decided it was time for me to be home full-time with our kids and to step back from my job. And I had heard everyone talk about how motherhood is ministry, but when I was home with a two-year-old and an infant, it didn't feel like the ministry that I was used to. My sphere of influence had just shrunk almost overnight. And then somewhere along the lines, Michael continued in pastoral ministry, and so our family was still a part of it. And it was kind of this almost subconscious assumption that success in ministry meant that eventually you would get like um, more influence, more authority. You would get put in charge of more things. Like if you were a youth pastor, a lot of people like their goal was become a lead pastor. Or if you were at a medium-sized church, the goal was get a job at an even bigger, cooler church. And in Michael's defense, he has never been like a power-hungry pastor. He's operated with the utmost humility. Um, But the Lord's plan for us was not that trajectory. And so instead of God taking our family into a season of bigger and more or faster, whatever, he has led us into slower and smaller and deeper. And, And I spend most of my days in the walls of my home with my four kids, and I love it, but the phrase the Lord has kind of given me over this season of my own life and our family's life and ministry is it feels like a season of obscurity. Like our, our life and our influence is smaller and it's good. But I wonder if you identify with that wrestling. Most of us will live most of our days in kind of obscurity, meaning we kind of just do the regular things, whether it's going to our job, taking care of our kids, doing our schoolwork, mowing the lawn, doing dishes, all of that kind of stuff. Um, Maybe for you, you can reflect back on a season that felt really easy to attach meaning to, like a time where you were like, my life has impact, I know what I'm doing is making a difference, I know exactly how God is using me, And then perhaps you've had other seasons, maybe even right now, where you feel like, I do not know. I do not know how God is forming me. I do not know how he is using me. I do not know anything because my life feels kind of lame. And it's the same thing all the time, and that is how it feels. So yes, there are those who get to do ministry or like Jesus following as a job, Um, But for most of us, we will live our days doing something else. And I'm beginning to think that maybe that thing, whatever our thing is, is not like the roadblock and the thing getting in the way of our real life knowing Jesus, but maybe it's the catalyst for it. It's not just like some stepping stone on the way to our more fulfilling life. It is, in fact, the place where God wants to form us. Like, I'm not doing a ton of what you would call, like, spiritual formation right now. I'm not in a Bible study. I don't spend a ton of time in silence or solitude. Um, And while I'm not trying to downplay the importance of cultivating rhythms, I think they're amazing and I want more of them, those can't be the only way to access life with Jesus because most of our time is spent doing everything else. And so is it possible that it's in those places that the Lord wants to both meet us and form us.
And I believe the answer is yes. So we're going to look at a passage tonight that I have come to love, and I honestly loved it at first glance without even studying it at all. I just thought, like, this is a great passage. I like what it says, and left it at that, and I literally had never dug any deeper until this weekend. Um, but turns out it's still cool, and there's, like, good meaning to it. So it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12. Paul writes about brotherly love. You don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit. First, Paul comes in with a beautiful encouragement, affirms their love for one another, the ways that they're loving the community of God around them, and then he goes into this really interesting kind of three-part exhortation of telling them how to live, but it's not like the typical list that we find in like Ephesians or Colossians of like, be patient, bear with one another in love, be humble, forgive one another, like all those kind of normal things. He says, seek to lead a quiet life, um, mind your own business, work with your hands. Why? So that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. And the NIV says, so that you, your life may win the respect of outsiders. Um, a commentary called the New American Commentary describes it like this. It says, a series of commands that begins with a concern for growing mutual Christian love concludes with a concern for the church's relationships to the non-Christian community. So we're going to dig into that more in a second, but let's revisit those initial first three things and why that was the exhortation that Paul gave, right in between loving one another and making sure that your life was respectable to non-believers, why was it those three things? Why did that matter? Um, as I kind of read through comment commentaries, there were a few different theories popped up, so I'll just share a few. I'm not saying that these are scripture or fact, but they are what some people think based on the context. Um, first of all, some have speculated that among this particular church, there were some believers who were just living with idleness like laziness. If you read through First and Second Thessalonians, there's multiple times where Paul mentions um, like eschatology or Christ's return and the day of the Lord and him coming back. Um, and so it's very possible that there were some believers who were like, he's coming. I can quit my job. I don't need to. He said he was coming soon and I'm going to like bail on like the, the earth responsibilities because I have a kingdom waiting for me. Um, and along the same lines, that mind your own business, as there was perhaps some lazy believers, when you become like idle, just like looking for stuff to do. So there was people maybe like meddling in other people's business, kind of becoming like busybodies and filling their time with the wrong things because they weren't filling their time with the right things. Um, and so then the last one that Paul says is work with your own hands. Like, do, do what's in front of you. And though this isn't the entire point of the passage, it's interesting to note that um, in the Greek culture, like manual labor 
and working with your hands was not esteemed as like a good and valuable thing. However, in the Jewish culture, it was very esteemed. Like the Jewish people placed a high value on working with their hands and Jesus himself was a carpenter. His dad was a carpenter. So many of his followers were fishermen. Like they were, there was value in it. So Paul says these things. Seek to lead a quiet life. Mind your own beeswax, which is the Greek for business. Um, work with your hands. And then he like brings it all together and says that the overflow of these things should be that your life will be respectable to outsiders and charges them to not be dependent on anybody as a result of their own laziness. So that phrase, at first glance, do not be dependent on anyone, seems almost counter-scriptural because we read in Acts that the believers were supposed to share all their stuff with each other. They were like supposed to be dependent on one another. So is Paul contradicting himself? No. What he's saying is that a productive congregation who's like diligent and hardworking at what is theirs to do and is good stewards of the tasks that God has entrusted them with, a productive congregation is going to be able to meet the needs of one another and the needs of outsiders should they arise. And so those outside the church wouldn't be able to accuse believers of like, they can't even take care of themselves because they don't work. They're too lazy. So that's kind of like the bigger picture there. So they're their way that they lived their day, their vocations, their jobs, it really mattered in light of their life as a follower of Jesus. Another excerpt from that New American Commentary says, Paul did not encourage Christians to be social revolutionaries. In fact, the missionaries denied such charges when they were leveled against them. Earthly governments were, after all, part of the temporal economy of God. They were part of the old world that was passing away, but it was not Paul's intent that the church disrupt society or overthrow governments. Rather, he encouraged Christians to be good citizens and exemplary members of their families and of their society, but to do so in a manner consistent with the teachings of Christ. Only in this sense was the Pauline gospel intended to change society. It set out to change the individuals who made up society while awaiting that climactic event when the power of God would truly change the world forever. I don't know if you've ever felt this, but I think sometimes it's easy to think about our life as like we have regular life and then separately you need to find ways to like show Jesus to people and need to like do, go out of our ways. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes we might need to pray and ask the Lord, Lord, who do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to go? What opportunities am I missing? Do you want me to take something on? Um, but rather than those things being separate, I think what Paul's showing us here is that they're actually really deeply connected. And that call to lead a life that is quiet and minding our own business and working with our hands, whatever that is that's ours to do, is not an excuse to remain alienated from non-believers. That's not what Paul is saying. But it is a significant way in which we get to demonstrate the beauty and the winsome nature of Jesus to a watching world. So perhaps very basic things for us, whatever, however you spend your days, things like work ethic and integrity and kindness and honesty and diligence, um, whatever those things, whatever we're doing, 
Those are the ways, a big way that we show Jesus to those around us. Um, I think about when I was growing up, my dad actually I think has always been a really good example of this. He worked for years and years and years in all sorts of jobs, the public sector, worked for the state, worked for the private sector, all sorts of things with a variety of coworkers and a variety of bosses. And I just knew that my dad loved the Lord and that he wanted to be like an honest, kind, hardworking employee or boss or coworker that he went to just these regular, very regular nine to five jobs every day. Um, And I know that it wasn't always his favorite, but it was the way that he provided for our family. And so he did seasons that he probably liked and seasons that he probably didn't like. But I knew and have always known that he wanted to show up and just represent the Lord. He wasn't always like talking about Jesus necessarily, but just in his character. Um, And I really think that mattered to the people around him. One more scripture that we're going to take a look at. Um, So good job, Dad. Um, one more scripture is Colossians 3.17, and this is likely a familiar passage to many of us. Um, in Colossians 3, Paul is outlining like just a bunch of things, kind of the more what you would call classic marks of um, things that should mark a Jesus follower's life, things like kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, um, forgiveness, love, And then he wraps up that section in verse 17 and says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In whatever you do, he lands lands that plane with like, okay, whatever you do in word or deed, what you say, how you act, which that covers like a lot of our bases, Do it all in the name of the Lord, which sometimes that phrase gets thrown around, like, do it in the name of Jesus. Like, you don't have to brush your teeth and be like, in Jesus' name. Like, that's not, what it really means is to do something in the name of the Lord means to own and be mindful of the fact that you bear his name. To do something in the name of Jesus, to know that you were saved by the name of Jesus, you've been set apart for the name of Jesus, and you now represent the name of Jesus. So when you do whatever you do in the name of Jesus, you can do it, whatever that is, with an awareness awareness of his presence with you and a desire to bear his name and represent his name honorably and well. And I love that. So pause for a moment and think about your whatever. What is your whatever you do? It's probably a lot of different things, like for all of us. Um, maybe it's schoolwork of some kind, or figuring out responsibilities with the people you live with, whether it's roommates or your family, um, cooking meals, doing dishes. Maybe it's pursuing a hobby or an interest that you're just really into right now. Maybe it's shopping for Christmas gifts or caring for kids or grandkids or serving here at Valley, or loving your spouse, or doing laundry all the time, or opening the door when a neighbor knocks and needs something, needs help of some kind, or going to work again, even though it's not your dream job, but it is how the Lord is providing for you. Maybe it's interacting with employees or making decisions for your business. Um, Dallas Willard 
in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, reminds us that the place where transformation is actually carried out is in our real life, where we dwell with God and our neighbors. First, we must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. I'm gonna read that part again. We must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. Like we're not waiting for another season to experience God's transforming power and his blessing over us. Like it happens when we're willing and like open to the work of his spirit in us. It happens where we actually are in the life that we actually live. Like I said, for me, this is mostly at home with my kids right now, driving to and from school, um, prepping meals, pausing so many times in the day, you guys, to break up or to help with sibling fights and arguments and things like that. Um, And we have a few like little rhythms that we're (laughs) trying to implement to try to create moments that like feel a little more meaningful. But even that, even our best attempts at like a meaningful moment are just not that deep with our children. So whenever the Lord kind of like gifts us a surprise deep moment, we're grateful. But I'll give you an example. We implemented a new rhythm at the beginning of the school year that we call family hug and prayer. And it wasn't even our idea. We got it from a book. Um, But at 745 on school mornings, right before we take Nora to school, we just call all our kids and say, hey, everyone, family hug and prayer. And the, the point is that we just like all come together like by our door or by the kitchen and like put your arm around who's ever by you. And we just say a really quick prayer over our day. Unless you think it is like a far father moment, it is not that. It is like a 10 second deal, probably. Would you like 10, maybe 15 seconds? Sometimes it's like the, the boys are like, I wanna pray and scouts like, thank you for poopy, and then everybody giggles, and somebody else, like Michael and I, finish it up. Um, Or, like, really, truly, sometimes right before we've called everyone for family hug and prayer, two kids have been fighting, and it's, like, screaming and loud, and nobody is happy, and we're like, family hug and prayer, come on. Um, Or one kid wants a hug from another, and that kid's like, don't touch me. Um, So that is, and that's, like, the most That's how we spend most of our time. We don't spend like so many deep, lengthy moments of like, this is our family just so deep together. I'm like praying and hoping like, Lord, please do something with this just attempt, attempt at remembering you together in our day. But a lot of the formative moments for our kids right now, probably even more formative, are happening just in the regular stuff. The conversations in the car or the time that we get up with them in the middle of the night or over and over and over and over again that we have to apologize to each other in their homes these days, in our home, me to the kids, them to one another, them to me, extending forgiveness over and over. It's just the regular, the regular stuff. Um, There's a passage in a book that I have come to love. I've talked about it here and probably will keep talking about it because I love it. It's called The Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. And she writes... The new life in which we are baptized is lived out in days, hours, and minutes. God is forming us into a new people, and the place of that formation is in the small moments of today. Alfred Hitchcock said, movies are life with the dull bits cut out. 
car chases and first kisses, interesting plot lines and good conversations. We don't want to watch our lead character going on a walk, stuck in traffic, or brushing his teeth, at least not for long and not without a good soundtrack. We tend to want a Christian life with the dull bits cut out. Yet God made us to spend our days in rest, work, and play, taking care of our bodies, our families, our neighbors, or homes. What if all these boring parts matter to God? What if days passed in ways that feel small and insignificant to us are weighty with meaning and part of the abundant life God has for us? And I look around even just this room, and there's so many ways that our church family spends our days. We have caregivers and nurses and police officers and stay-at-home moms and homeschooling moms and chemical engineers and entrepreneurs and business owners and interior designers and counselors and contractors and welders and restaurant owners and um, those who are retired and prayerfully investing their time, working for the Bible Project. Um, We have an escape room architect in our church. He's not here tonight, but what a cool job, right? Um, Or coordinating home visits for families who need help. I feel so proud of our church family and all the ways that you guys spend your days. Teacher, I forgot to mention teacher, craftsman. There's literally missionaries. Like we run the gamut of the way that we kind of divide and disperse in the course of a week and represent Jesus, whether we're aware of it or not, all over our community. It's so, so cool. And like I said earlier, maybe you find it really easy to attach meaning to your work in this season, and maybe you don't. But my heart tonight is just to hopefully remind you on behalf of the Lord that he makes these really small, really ordinary places sacred. And he does that in different ways. Sometimes it's just by reminding us that he's there with us when we are doing that same thing again, that same chore, that same thing on our list. We're doing it again, and we just remember, God, you're with me here. Sometimes there might be a season where you feel like the Lord has an assignment for you in where where you operate, whether it's at your job or your home, and you know, like, Lord, you have me here for these friends and these coworkers, and they need you, and they don't know anyone who follows Jesus, and I know that that's why you put me here. Sometimes it's just the forming and the meaning comes from the way that God is shaping us into people of character and people who look more like him just by the very nature of diligently getting up and doing it all over again. Our perseverance our patience, our ability to forgive, our ability to extend grace or to be humble or less selfish, to be willing to serve others or to work hard. So much of that is just developed as we seek to do all the things in the name of Jesus and to invite him into it. Maybe it's been a while since you asked, Lord, how are you forming me in the ordinary places? And that's just the question I want to encourage and challenge us with tonight is just to ask the Lord as we head into whatever you're heading into this week, whether you are excited about it or dreading it, to just ask the Lord, Lord, 
How are you forming me in the ordinary places? I'm going to close by reading a couple excerpts from this book. It's called Every Moment Holy, and if you haven't heard of it, it's a collection of liturgies geared toward exactly everything we've been talking about, like um, liturgies for just ordinary moments and events in life. There's a liturgy for the changing of diapers, for example, and the goal of it is just to, to do what we've been talking about to help connect how might the Lord be in this with me? Where can my eyes see him in this very normal thing that I'm doing? And so I've picked two to read in hopes that in one of these you might see yourself and your season of life. Um, And they'll be up on the screen so you can read, um, kind of follow along as I read. The first one is one I've come back to many times and it's called a liturgy for domestic days. And this is not exclusive to people who happen to stay home all the time. It's for, we all have domestic days where you just have things to tend to. Might be your yard, it might be the inside of your house or bills or scrubbing your toilet or I don't know. But this is a really beautiful liturgy for domestic days. Many are the things that must daily be done. Meet me therefore, O Lord, in the doing of the small repetitive tasks, in the cleaning and ordering and maintenance and stewardship of things, of dishes, of floors, of carpets and toilets and tubs, of scrubbing and sweeping and dusting and laundering, that by such great stewardship I might bring a greater order to my own life and to the lives of any I'm given to serve, so that in those ordered spaces bright things might flourish, fellowship and companionship, creativity and conversation, learning and laughter and enjoyment and health. As I steward the small daily tasks, may I remember these good ends and so discover in my labors the promise of the eternal hopes that underlie them. High King of heaven, you showed yourself among us as the servant of all, speaking stories of a kingdom to come, a kingdom in which those who spend themselves for love, even in the humblest of services, will not be forgotten but whose every service lovingly rendered will be seen from that far vantage as the planting of a precious seed blooming into eternity. And so I offer this small service to you, O Lord, for you make no distinction between those acts that bring a person the wide praise of their peers and those unmarked acts that are accomplished in a quiet obedience without accolade. You see instead the heart, the love, and the faithful stewardship of all labors, great and small, And so, in your loving presence, I undertake this task. O God, grant that my heart might be ordered aright, knowing that all good service faithfully rendered is first a service rendered to you. Receive then this my service, that even in the midst of labors that hold no happiness in themselves, I might have increasing joy. Amen. And then I'm going to close with one called A Liturgy for One Who Is Employed. O Christ, who supplies my every need, I praise you for all provisions and for the means by which they are provided. For my current employment in this season of life, I give you thanks. By it, may I meet my own needs and contribute to the needs of others. Let me work and serve in this position with mindfulness, creativity, and kindness, loving you well by loving all whom I encounter here. Jesus, be ever present as mediator between me and my employer between me and my supervisors and coworkers and in all my dealings with others in this work, reminding me that my treatment of them is the strongest evidence of my affection for you. Grant me, therefore, the patience to listen to others, 
the humility to learn from them, the compassion to consider their needs as my own, and the grace to wear well in this place the name of my Lord, remembering that I arrive here each day as an emissary of your kingdom. Let me be an asset to my employer and superiors, working for their flourishing without resentment. Let me be a support to my peers, contributing to their advancement without jealousy. Let me be an encouragement to any I train or lead, affirming and equipping them without disdain. May the days of my employment here be meaningful. Use this chapter in my life to accomplish your ends, whatever they might be. And may my presence here daily suggest your presence here. And may the outworking of the gospel be always evident in this my work, that my service as an employee might be ever reckoned and received as service first rendered unto you, O Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Amen.